Welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Man in the Making, with former monk Rajan Shankara and myself, Rokas. Thank you for joining me, Rajan. Thank you, Rokas. Before we begin to read in, there is a question from a listener relating to last week's episode, referring to the part of the text that says, we pretend to be what we are not because we are afraid of being rejected. The question is, if you've spent your whole life being an individual that is constantly pleasing others, how do you know that that is not the actual you? All right. So that's a really good question. Uh, and thank you to the listener for the uh, question. I don't think the text is for everyone. Like, I don't think self-development texts and philosophical bits about finding yourself I don't think that ever it doesn't apply to everyone. Certainly everyone, the, the field itself applies to everyone, but specific philosophies will say different things to get to the same goal. And your true self is someone that's going to try to do as much for others as possible. And if you're an individual that is empathetic and sensitive and you look out for others first before you, you know, you're a caring, kind, gentle type of person who just wants everything to be harmonious. That's awesome. And that could be the type of person to be for the rest of your life. I think that that's a, a noble and worthy cause. But something I also say is that's a, that's, a, that's a good thing until it's not. And we know that who we are is spontaneous and, and flexible and creative. So our, our real nature in my training and in my perspective and opinion, uh, which is the soul nature, that which is us, is open to be whatever the moment calls to be. So you, you might be a host of different things. And if it's beneficial for you and the people around you, whatever that may be, then, then you are who you are. But that could change as well. Because it's like, uh, you know, the famous quote from Bruce Lee, you have to be like water, right? So water is, is malleable. Water can fit into anything and it can take the shape of whatever container it's in and it's clear so you can see through it. So if that's our nature, then that's our nature. And when you read something like um, Don Ruiz, you know, he's saying that he's talking to people that haven't figured that out yet and don't feel content. They don't feel yet that they found out who they are. And so they're searching and he's offering a perspective for those people. If you're the kind of person that is helpful, empathetic and helping people, and that's how, that's who you feel you are, then more power to you. That's, that's just the first thing that came to mind. You know, oftentimes we are who we are at all times of our life. It evolves as we get older, but 
and, and hopefully wiser. But as, as we would say in, in Eastern um, philosophy that, you know, even the mistakes, even the manipulations that you've had done to yourself, even the conflicts, all of that is a part of uh, your own growth process. And so whatever stage you're in, you, you are who you are and you're going through a process that will draw a lesson from it. And I think Don Ruiz's writing is to find someone who's um, unhappy and they don't feel like themselves. And they feel like um, they don't know where to turn and they're depressed or because uh, we are, our true nature is not going to be depressed. Uh, that's going to be a, a like a, like a, sh- uh, like a, a covering over a lamp, dimming the light. Our, our true nature um, is not sadness. It's not happiness either. Our tr- but our true nature is just this, constant state of observation like a little ball of light and just seeing what what's going on and anything else is is just an attribute assigned to ego and ego is the biggest covering over our our true selves so as long as it's working for you and you're learning something then try to extract the lesson from that and and be the way your ego wants you to be. Um, but if something inside you is, is uh, yearning for more, like this can't possibly be it, then by all means, um, begin the search to reduce ego and, and see what it's like to uh, get rid of it temporarily and be, be, really be your true self. I know that's complicated. They uh, summarize that well. What? The end summarized it well. Oh, okay, good. I summarized it. Um, and, I, and I'm happy to entertain a follow-up question. And, and, and even if, if that becomes an entire, uh, if there are more questions and that becomes an entire conversation, I think we should record it um, and talk about it as a, as for the three of us on the podcast. Okay, good idea. So let's begin with the Book of Five Rings. This episode is honoring the life of Miyamoto Musashi and his work, The Book of Five Rings, and also known as Go Rin No Show. My Japanese is going to be terrible, so please excuse me. Um, the Book of Five Rings is something I read after I read the uh, about the life of Musashi, uh, the, the biography, not autobiography. It was written by someone else. And Musashi is a, a biography um, about uh, the, the samurai and his life. And it's filled in with parts fiction. Uh, some parts of it are nonfiction and reflecting uh, the accurate history of this samurai. Um, The Book of Five Rings is one of Miyamoto's only written works done by himself. And 
I believe the other, the other work that he created is just a, uh, it's a very simple short sayings type of aphorism book. Uh, also uh, very good. But the book of five rings is specific to uh, Musashi's fighting style. It's a, it's a manual for explaining his um, Ichi school of fighting. And if you're going to, if you're going to read Musashi, uh, I would start with the biography. It's just called Musashi and it's very long. We, we might want to cover it on another podcast episode, but the book of five rings is a smaller chunk of the same philosophy and it's easier to break it down and, um, get teachings from it. And so I, I tried my best to go over what is most relevant for this cliff note. And the rest is very specific. I mean, extremely specific to fighting and swordsmanship. But what I, what I focus on, and I think what a lot of people focus on when it comes to Musashi's life and his teachings is the philosophy part because not a lot of us are, are wielding a sword anymore um, to defend um, our boss, but that is what a samurai used to do. So we'll cover um, the introduction from the translator and the introduction from Musashi and then a little bit of the philosophy and we hope it will be of benefit. So we're going to cover the beginning from the translator, and this is an explanation of Japan during Musashi's lifetime. Miyamoto Musashi was born in 1584 in a Japan struggling to recover from more than four centuries of internal strife. The traditional rule of the emperors had been overthrown in the 12th century, and although each successive emperor remained the figurehead of Japan, his powers were, were very much reduced. Since that time, Japan had seen almost continuous civil war between the provincial lords, warrior monks and brigands, all fighting each other for land and power. In the 5th and 16th centuries, the lords called daimyo built huge stone castles to protect themselves and their lands, and castle towns outside the walls began to grow up. These wars naturally restricted the growth of trade and impoverished the whole country. In 1573, however, one man, Oda Nobunaga, came to the fore in Japan. He became shogun, or military dictator, and for nine years succeeded in gaining control of almost the whole of the country. When Nobunaga was assassinated in 1582, a commoner took over the government. Toyotomi Hideyoshi continued the work of unifying Japan, which Nobunaga had begun, ruthlessly putting down any traces of insurrection. He revived the old gulf between the warriors of Japan, the samurai, and the commoners by introducing restrictions on wearing of swords. Hideyoshi's sword hunt, as it was known, meant that only samurai were allowed to wear two swords the short one, which everyone could wear, and the long one, which distinguished the samurai from the rest of the population. I think that's 
perfect for a few paragraphs. We can all see that the translator is laying down the foundation for what Japan was like in the 1600s. And it was very much uh, real samurai uh, work going on. And people indeed were walking around with swords and defending their bosses, um, no matter the, the trade that they would, you know, people didn't have cars, right? They were all on um, horse and carriage, so to speak. So if a, someone who had a furniture company was going across the country, uh, he would bring samurai with him so that if there was a group of thieves that attempted to steal the uh, goods, the samurai would slay them down. And this is where um, Miyamoto, this is what he was born into. And you have to kind of put yourself in these people's shoes for a moment to understand the gravity of the situation and the amount of danger that they were in. And so Miyamoto sticks out as an influential figure because not only did he survive um, a lifetime of fighting uh, and actual recorded uh, battles, um, but he thrived in that situation. And that's, I think that's one of the, the biggest um, influences it had on me as a monk and going through physical disciplines that were very challenging, sleep deprivation, I found uh, Musashi existed and then his work kind of called out to me since I was, I felt, you know, like a warrior monk, you know, uh, and you get that feeling of, of cold hardness and having the need to survive when sleep is taken away, food is taken away, um, your, your, your head is to the ground and you're just constantly grinding and working. And I think that's what a lot of people get out of Musashi. Musashi belonged to the samurai class. We find the origins of the samurai class in the Konde, stalwart youth system established in 792 AD, whereby the Japanese army, which had until then consisted mainly of spear-wielding foot soldiers, was revived by stiffening the ranks with permanent training officers recruited from among the young sons of the high families. These officers were mounted, wore armor, and used the bow and sword. In 782, the emperor Camus started building Kyoto. And in Kyoto, he built a training hall which exists to this day called the Butokuden, meaning Hall of the Virtues of War. Within a few years of this revival, the fierce Ainu, the aboriginal inhabitants of Japan who had until then confounded the army's attempt to move them from their wild lodgings, were driven far off to the northern island. Hokkaido. Now, he's going to go into a fighting style that was introduced around this time called Kendo. Kendo, the way of the sword, had always been synonymous with nobility in Japan. Since the founding of the samurai class in the 8th century, the military arts had become the highest form of study, inspired by the teachings of Zen and the feeling of Shinto. Schools of Kendo 
born in the early Muromachi period, approximately 1390 to 1600, were continued through the upheavals of the formation of the peaceful Tokugawa shogunate and survived to this day. The education of the sons of the Tokugawa shoguns was by means of schooling in the Chinese classics and fencing exercises. Where a Westerner might say the pen is mightier than the sword, the Japanese would say bunbu ichi, or pen and sword in accord. Today, prominent businessmen and political figures in Japan still practice the old traditions of kendo schools, preserving the forms of several hundred years ago. Ending the introduction, the translator says, Musashi was a ronin at a time when the samurai were formally considered to be the elite, but actually had no means of livelihood unless they owned lands and castles. Many ronin put up their swords and became artisans, but others, like Musashi, pursued the ideal of the warrior, searching for enlightenment through the perilous paths of kendo. Duels of revenge and tests of skill were commonplace, and fencing schools multiplied. Two schools especially, the Ito school and the Yagyu school, were sponsored by the Tokugawas. The Ito school provided an unbroken line of kendo teachers, and the Yagyu school eventually became the secret police of the Tokugawa bureaucracy. <clears throat> so we can see Musashi made an impact by breaking past these traditional schools and creating his own. And he went through an entire uh, 50 or so years uh, discovering that this other style that he later um, officially developed. A bit about Kendo from the translator. Traditionally, the fencing halls of Japan called dojo, were associated with shrines and temples. But during Musashi's lifetime, numerous schools sprang up in the new castle towns. Each daimyo or lord sponsored a kendo school where his retainers could be trained and his sons educated. The hope of every ronin was that he would defeat the students and master of a dojo in combat, thus increasing his fame and bringing his name to the ears of one who might employ him. The samurai wore two swords thrust through the belt with the cutting edge uppermost. The longer sword was carried out of doors only. The shorter sword was worn at all times. For training, wooden swords and bamboo swords were often used. Dueling and other tests of arms were common, with both real and practiced swords. These took place in fencing halls and before shrines, in the streets and within castle walls. Duels were fought to the death or until one of the contestants was disabled. But a few generations after Musashi's time, the Shinnai, a pliable bamboo sword, a later padded fencing armor, came to be widely used, so the chances of injury were greatly reduced. The samurai studied with all kinds of weapons, halberds, sticks, swords, chain and sickle, and others. Many schools using such weapons survive in traditional form in Japan today. To train in kendo, one must subjugate the self, bear the pain of grueling practice, and cultivate a level mind in the face of peril. But the way of the sword means not only fencing training, but also living by the code of honor of the samurai elite. 
Warfare was the spirit of the samurai's everyday life, and he could face death as if it were a domestic routine. The meaning of life and death by the sword was mirrored in the everyday conduct, conduct of the feudal Japanese. And he who realized the resolute acceptance of death at any moment in his everyday life was a master of the sword. It is in order to attain such an understanding that later men have followed the ancient traditions of the sword fencing styles and even today give up their lives for kendo practice. Now that's a dedication, right? That's why <clears throat> these teachings are, can be conveyed very powerfully to people who need them. It's unusual and it's a, a culture that, um, it's a, it's a Eastern culture that I don't think ever translated to the West as, as a Western culture. It remains Eastern. It remains specific to China and Japan and Asia as a whole. It's not, it's not the same kind of, uh, dedication, right? No, no one is a samurai anymore. Um, that would be illegal wherever you went. But <clears throat> what is attractive is the attitude and the dedication that one has to their lifestyle, right? The discipline. A discipline is always attractive. And it attracted me. Um, the lifestyle of a monk, um, you know, spoke to me as, as structure and routine and ritual that was going to shape the, the mastery that I so uh, desired. And thankfully it, I found a, a, a school, so to speak, that, that would train me. And I think a lot of young people are on their own. They don't have that that school training, so to speak. They don't have a culture that they can follow because the West has adopted a cultureless um, attitude because it's such a melting pot of all these different cultures. So which one do we do? Um, and that's why <clears throat> I always recommend uh, the studying of other cultures so that something speaks to you and you begin to follow it. So this next section is the, uh, the meeting of Kendo and Zen. The way of the sword is the moral teaching of the samurai, fostered by the Confucianist philosophy which shaped the Tokugawa system, together with the native Shinto religion of Japan. The warrior courts of Japan from the Kamakura period to the Muromachi period encouraged, encouraged the austere Zen study among the samurai. And Zen went hand in hand with the arts of war. In Zen, there are no elaborations. It aims directly at the true nature of things. There are no ceremonies, no teachings. The prize of Zen is essentially personal. Enlightenment in Zen does not mean a change in behavior but realization of the nature of ordinary life. The end point is the beginning, and the great virtue is simplicity. The secret teaching of the Ito Ryu school of Kendo, Kiryotoshi, is the first technique of some hundred or so. The teaching is Ai-uchi, meaning to cut the opponent just as he cuts you. This is the ultimate timing. 
It is lack of anger. It means to treat your enemy as an honored guest. It also means to abandon your life or throw away fear. The first technique is the last. The beginner and the master behave in the same way. Knowledge is a full circle. The first of Musashi's chapter headings is ground for the basis of kendo and zen. And the last book is void for that understanding which can only be expressed as nothingness. The teachings of kendo are like the fierce verbal forays to which the Zen student is subjected. Assailed with doubts and misery, his mind and spirit in a whirl, the student is gradually guided to realization and understanding by his teacher. The kendo student practices furiously. Thousands of cuts morning and night, learning fierce techniques of horrible war, until eventually sword becomes no sword. Intention becomes no intention, a spontaneous knowledge of every situation. The first elementary teaching becomes the highest knowledge, and the master still continues to practice this simple training, his every prayer. And I think that, that kind of reminds me of how we answered the earlier question is, of, of, and, and quoting Bruce Lee's uh, Be Like Water, um, like our actual nature is this this um, source of of pre creative energy like nothing has happened yet there's just observation and that's what the monks trained me in for uh, the ultimate um, accomplishment in meditation it's this it's this pure observational uh, place at the center of you where and Musashi calls it the void, but um, it's a it's a it's a place where infinite potential exists because nothing has happened yet. It's like freeze framing um, a ball being thrown from a pitcher's hand. You know, you don't know what's going to happen, but but the source of energy is right there. And that ball getting thrown to the catcher is what happens after successful meditation. That, that's what happens when you leave your house. That's what happens when you turn on your car. But the ultimate state or the void, as Musashi calls it, is that pre-energetic state that has potential only. And I think um, it's almost a physics teaching um, and the, there's probably um, findings and discoveries that part of our cells have a pre-energetic state where they're not, there's no intention yet. And um, I think that's one of the fascinating things about Musashi. Not only did he become an amazing warrior um, starting from nothing. I mean, literally he was, like a murderous thug when he was young and uh, ended up become, becoming one of Japan's most iconic samurai, developing his own school. And then when he was older, uh, renounced, lived in a cave and, and essentially um, sought enlightenment. So uh, that's, that is very uh, unusual and, he really puts things very simply, just like it says, 
the style of kendo is all about and we'll read some of that when we get to his words now the next part of the book of five rings after the introduction goes over a bit about the life of Miyamoto Musashi. Musashi was born in the village called Miyamoto in the province Mimasaka in 1584. Musashi is the name of an area southwest of Tokyo and the appellation no kami means noble person of the area, while Fujiwara is the name of the noble family foremost in Japan over a thousand years ago. Musashi's ancestors were a branch of the powerful Harima clan in Kyushu, the southern island of Japan. Hirada Shokan, his grandfather, was a retainer of Shinman Iga no Kami Sudigishige. So a retainer is the um, worker of or the, the protector or like a bodyguard of the boss. So, or a boss could just be of someone in the hierarchy of a, of a higher family, like a, sta a statesman or a political figure, someone like that. So a samurai would be hired. And when they, when they worked for a master, they were then called a retainer. When Musashi was seven, his father Munisai either died or abandoned the child. As his mother had died, Ben no Suke, as Musashi was known during his childhood, was left in care of an uncle on his mother's side, a priest. So we find Musashi an orphan during Hideyoshi's campaigns of unification, son of a samurai in a violent, unhappy land. He was a boisterous youth, strong-willed and physically large for his age. Whether he was urged to pursue kendo by his uncle or whether his aggressive nature led him to it, we do not know, but it is recorded that he slew a man in single combat when he was just 13. The opponent was Arima Kihei, a samurai of the Shinto Ryu School of Military Arts, skilled with a sword and spear. The boy threw the man to the ground and beat him about the head with a stick when he tried to rise. Kihei died vomiting blood. Musashi's next contest was when he was 16, when he defeated Tadashima Akiyama. About this time, he left home to embark on the warrior pilgrimage which saw him victor in scores of contests and which took him to war six times until he finally settled down at the age of 50, having reached the end of his search for reason. There must have been many ronin, ronin is a masterless samurai, traveling the country on similar expeditions. Some alone, like Musashi, and some enjoying sponsorship, though not on the scale of the pilgrimage of the famous swordsman Sukahara Bokuden, who had traveled with a retinue of over 100 men in the previous century. So the other, uh, the biography of Musashi is about that uh, warrior pilgrimage. And it covers the time that he awakens from an actual war between um, two royal families as he fought for one side as a soldier and his friend uh, also. And they, the book, the biography has them starting from that point. So as uh, you know, 20 year olds pretty much 
and uh, moving onward from then, uh, from Musashi's confusion about life and, and what his purpose is, to meeting a monk and being trained in solitary confinement, uh, I believe for three years, changing his name uh, to Musashi, and then being released into the wild to continue uh, understanding what he was supposed to do with life. As he did that, he fought people. He looked for masters. He, he looked for people that were better than him so that he could learn from them. And he found out through trial uh, and success that he was um, one of the best, uh, if not the best fighters. Um, I will skip to... his most famous fight, which uh, ended up being with someone who he felt was better than him. And uh, this is really um, artfully covered in the biography. So if you get a chance, please read uh, the biography of Musashi. Um, he, he did meet um, a fighter who, who actually was better than him, but had ego. And uh, Musashi, uh, had transcended ego earlier in solitary confinement and lived much more um, humble and um, um, spontaneously and just understood the way of the sword was actually understanding yourself. And then the fighting would happen naturally. And so that this other fighter was uh, is shown to be uh, full of ego and pride and the rest is history. Musashi's most well-known duel was in the 17th year of Kaicho, 1612, when he was in Ogura in Bunzen province. His opponent was Sasaki Kojiro, a young man who had developed a strong fencing technique known as Subame Geishi, or swallow counter, inspired by the motion of a swallow's tail in flight. Kojiro was retained by the Lord of the province, Tadaoki, Tadaoki, Hosokawa Tadaoki. Musashi applied to Tadaoki for permission to fight Kojiro through the offices of one of the Hosokawa retainers who had been a pupil of Musashi's father. Permission was granted for the contest to be held at 8 o'clock the next morning, and the place was to be an island some few miles from Ogura. That night, Musashi left his lodging and moved to the house of Kobayashi Taro Zeman. This inspired a rumor that awe of Kojiro's subtle technique had made Musashi run away afraid for his life. The next day at 8 o'clock, Musashi could not be woken until a prompter came from the officials assembled on the island. He got up, drank the water they brought to him to wash with, and went straight down to the shore. As Sato rode across the island, Musashi fashioned a paper string to tie back the sleeves of his kimono and cut a wooden sword from the spare oar. When he had done this, he lay down to rest. So Musashi, um, when he realized he was a master, started to not bring swords to fights, and he would make them before the fight. Or he would 
use whatever he had in hand to defeat his opponent. Opponent. So in this uh, famous battle, which is historically recorded by the country itself, I mean, these things happened as a normal part of, of life. He, he simply, in a relaxed and casual manner, made a wooden sword from an oar on the boat as he was going to the fight. The boat neared the place of combat and Kojiro and the waiting officials were astounded to see the strange figure of Musashi with his unkempt hair tied up in a towel, leap from the boat brandishing the long wooden oar and rush through the waves up to the beach towards his enemy. Kojiro drew his long sword, a fine blade by a famous swordsman and threw away his scabbard. The scabbard is the uh, sheath. You have no more need of that, said Musashi, as he rushed forward with his sword held to one side. Kojiro was provoked into making the first cut, and Musashi dashed upward at his blade, bringing the oar down on Kojiro's head. As Kojiro fell, his sword, which had cut the towel from Musashi's head, cut across the hem of his divided skirt. Musashi noted Kojiro's condition and bowed to the astounded officials before running back to his boat. Some sources have it that after he killed Kojiro, Musashi threw down the oar and, nimbly leaping back several paces, drew both his swords and flourished them with a shout at his fallen enemy. So, well, yeah, basically, he was just in this state of spontaneity and, and trusting in the way of the sword because he trusted in himself. And if he trusted in himself, that, that's called a presupposition. He already has the idea that if he trusts in himself, he will win. So he did. But um, Kojiro is... According to his biography, and I think the Book of Five Rings and his history, is the only person to ever make contact uh, and get close to him by cutting a piece of his uh, head wrap. So, uh, you know, he had a great deal of respect for this man. And of course, when Musashi had respect for someone, he then asked if he could fight them to the death. It was about this time that Musashi stopped ever using real swords and duels. He was invincible, and from now on he devoted himself to the search for perfect understanding by way of kendo. <clears throat> so imagine if people could use this philosophy in their life, right? I mean, if you trust in yourself and, and you hone in your own sense of reliance and self-worth, but also with humility. And you approach each situation as if it's the first time you're experiencing it and you're open, like an empty cup, we would say in the monastery. And you could be filled with information and not react emotionally. If you could have all these things in you, which takes years of training, by the way, this is not something that just happens because you're inspired about a book you read. This is something that you have to fail at over and over again. But once you understand it, and once you start to get it, it changes the way you see life. 
And that's what, it, that's what it means to be on the path or to understand the way and to understand Zen. Um, it's, there is no rule to it because it's, life is constantly happening. And so if you're detached and you're watching and only acting precisely when needed, um, life becomes, to be honest, I think life becomes much more exciting and much more bearable, I would say, because otherwise it's suffering. You know, you, you dread something because you know it's going to happen. But if you were open to this, this universal or cosmic spontaneity, like Musashi, I think you would find that life ha kind of turns to color when it was once black and white. Musashi finally begins his own writing in his introduction. I have been many years training in the way of strategy called Ni Ten Ichi Ryu, Ryu. And now I think I will explain it in writing for the first time. It is now during the first 10 days of the 10th month in the 20th year of Kane, 1645. I have climbed Mountain Iwato of Ego in Kyushu to pay homage to heaven, pray to Kwanan, and kneel before Buddha. I am a warrior of Harima province, Shinmin Musashi no Kami Fujiwara no Geshin, age 60 years. From youth, my heart has been inclined towards the way of strategy. My first duel when I was 13, I, was struck, I struck down a strategist of the Shinto school. When I was 16, I struck down an able strategist. When I was 21, I went up to the capital and met all manner of strategists, never once failing to win in many contests. After that, I went from province to province, dueling with strategists of various schools and not once failed to win, even though I had as many as 60 encounters. This was between the ages of 13 and 28 or 29. When I reached 30, I looked back on my past. The previous victories were not due to my having mastered strategy. Perhaps it was natural ability or the order of heaven or that other school strategy was inferior. After that, I studied morning and evening searching for the principle and came to realize the way of strategy when I was 50. Since then, I have lived without following any particular way. Thus, with the virtue of strategy, I practice many arts and abilities, all things with no teacher. To write this book, I did not use the law of Buddha or the teachings of Confucius, neither old war chronicles nor books on martial tactics. I take up my brush to explain the true spirit of this itchy school as it is mirrored in the way of heaven and Quanon. The time is the night of the 10th day of the 10th month at the hour of the tiger, 3 to 5 a.m. His first few paragraphs of the manual in a chapter called The Ground Book. 
Strategy is the craft of the warrior. Commanders must enact the craft and troopers should know this way. There is no warrior in the world today who really understands the way of strategy. There are various ways. There is the way of salvation by the law of Buddha, the way of Confucius governing the way of learning, the way of healing as a doctor, as a poet teaching the way of waka, tea, archery, and many arts and skills. Each man practices as he feels inclined. It is said that the warrior's is the twofold way of pen and sword, and he should have a taste for both ways. Even if a man has no natural ability, he can be a warrior by sticking assiduously to both divisions of the way. Generally speaking, the way of the warrior is resolute acceptance of death, although not only warriors but priests, women, peasants, and lowlier folk have been known to die readily in the cause of duty or out of shame. This is a different thing. The warrior is different in that studying the way of strategy is based on overcoming men. By victory gained in crossing swords with individuals or in joining battle with large numbers, we can attain power and fame for ourselves or for our Lord. This is the virtue of strategy. So one of the biggest things to understand about samurai is that a perfect samurai wasn't actually one who could win every fight, but they fought every fight as though they were going to die. And that's actually, um, as, as several notable samurai have written in their own words, the ability to live as though you're already dead is to have perfection with the sword. Another section in the same chapter is, uh, I felt important to read after uh, many paragraphs about specific techniques in fighting. This one is about timing and strategy. There is timing in everything. Timing and strategy cannot be mastered without a great deal of practice. Timing is important in dancing and pipe or string music for they are in rhythm only if timing is good. Timing and rhythm are also involved in the military arts, shooting bows and guns and riding horses. In all skills and abilities, there is timing. There is also timing in the void. There is timing in the whole life of the warrior, in his thriving and declining, in his harmony and discord. Similarly, there is timing in the way of the merchant, in the rise and fall of capital, all things entail rising and falling timing. You must be able to discern this. In strategy, there are various timing considerations. From the outset, you must know the applicable, applicable timing and the inapplicable timing. And from among the large and small things and the fast and slow timings, find the relevant timing. First, seeing the distance timing and the background timing. This is the main thing in strategy. It is especially important to know the background timing. Otherwise, your strategy will become uncertain. You win in battles with the timing in the void, born of the timing of cunning by knowing the enemy's timing. And this using a timing which the enemy does not expect. All the five books are chiefly concerned with timing. 
You must train sufficiently to appreciate all this. That's part of Musashi's kind of Zen endings to a lot of his teachings. You must train sufficiently to appreciate all this. Like he'll say something and then he'll say, you know, pay attention to what I'm saying. And thus you have to actually practice all of this in order to draw out your own wisdom from the knowledge that you've gained. And then his teachings kind of make more sense, but they never make sense. They're never going to make sense. If you just read it, you actually have to practice, right? And he goes on to say, if you practice day and night in the above itchy school strategy, your spirit will naturally broaden. Thus is large scale strategy and the strategy of hand to hand combat propagated in the world. This is recorded for the first time in the five books of ground, water, fire, tradition, and void. This is the way for men who want to learn my strategy. And here's his um, li abbreviated list of teachings. And this covers the entire book of five rings in several points. Do not think dishonestly. The way is in training. Become acquainted with every art. Know the ways of all professions. Distinguish between gain and loss in worldly matters. Develop intuitive judgment and understanding for everything. Perceive those things which cannot be seen. Pay attention even to trifles. Do nothing which is of no use. It is important to start by setting these broad principles in your heart and train in the way of strategy. If you do not look at things on a large scale, it will be difficult for you to master strategy. If you learn and attain this strategy, you will never lose even to 20 or 30 enemies. More than anything to start, you more than anything to start with, you must set your heart on strategy and earnestly stick to the way. You will come to be able to actually beat men in fights and to be able to win with your eye. Also, by training, you will be able to freely control your own body, conquer men with your body, and with sufficient training, you will be able to beat 10 men with your spirit. When you have reached this point, will it not mean that you are invincible? So one of the things he means when he says, you will be able to win with your eye. Part of the manual uh, in the Book of Five Rings um, is understanding gaze and how to look at someone. It's very interesting. And, and in his biography, um, it's written that he would look at someone before a fight. And like his, if you looked back at his gaze, it was, it was like, startling and i mean if he was disheveled and his hair was a mess and and he was like this wandering monk warrior and he gave you this piercing look you know you'd kind of you might be like someone is looking through you and not at you and that was part of his ichi school Moreover, in large-scale strategy, strategy, the superior man will manage many subordinates dexterously, 
bear himself correctly, govern the country and foster the people, thus preserving the ruler's discipline. If there is a way involving the spirit of not being defeated to help oneself and gain honor, it is the way of strategy. Now, the rest is a deep, deep, specific manual in, in fighting styles. Um, if you read it, take what you will. We're going to uh, try to find, uh, skipping to the end here, find the uh, gems of um, the entire manual and read the Book of the Void, which is only a few paragraphs ending the Book of Five Rings. The Ni To Ichi way of strategy is recorded in this book of the void. What is called the spirit of the void is where there is nothing. It is not included in man's knowledge. Of course, the void is nothingness. By knowing things that exist, you can know that which does not exist. That is the void. People in this world look at things mistakenly and think that what they do not understand must be the void. This is not the true void. It is bewilderment. In the way of strategy, also, those who study as warriors think that whatever they cannot understand in their craft is the void. This is not the true void. To attain the way of strategy as a warrior, you must study fully other martial arts and not deviate even a little from the way of the warrior. With your spirit settled, accumulate practice day by day and hour by hour. Polish the twofold spirit, heart, and mind, and sharpen the twofold gaze, perception, and sight. Uh, the twofold spirit, heart, is uh, holding two swords at the same time. Uh, an unusual fighting technique um, until Musashi realized that uh, you can be superior and fight up to 10 or 20 people with uh, two swords. When your spirit is not in the least clouded, when the clouds of bewilderment clear away, there is the true void. Until you realize the true way, whether in Buddhism or in common sense, you may think that things are correct and in order. However, if we look at things objectively from the viewpoint of laws of the world, we see various doctrines departing from the true way. Know well this spirit and with forthrightness as the foundation and the true spirit as the way. Enact strategy broadly, correctly, and openly. Then you will come to think of things in a wide sense, and taking the void as the way, you will see the way as void. In the void is virtue and no evil. Wisdom has existence. Principle has existence. The way has existence. Spirit is nothingness. Twelfth day of the fifth month, second year of Shoho, 1645. And that is part of the Book of Five Rings from Miyamoto Musashi. And may any part of that be of benefit and give insight. Thanks for listening.